Amen. Please be seated. Please take the insert out. It has one of the major passages that I will focus on this morning. It has been our practice over the years to devote these four weeks of Advent to a more topical treatment of a biblical concept or theme. And the incarnation is that theme, that focus that we have for these weeks together. Uh, Just a, a humble attempt to try to capture some of the impact of the incarnation in our life as believers. Um, When I was preparing this sermon, I was also preparing uh, my church history lesson for Sunday school, and I ran across a comment by Athanasius. Athanasius was uh, one of the Nicene fathers who lived in the early 4th century. He devoted his life to defending the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of Jesus as God. And he wrote this, The results of the incarnation of the Savior are such and so many that anyone attempting to enumerate them should be compared to a person looking upon the vastness of the sea and attempting to count its waves. So we're going to count four waves anyways over the course of these four weeks. We already have counted one, how the glory of, the, of, glory of God relates to the incarnation in a very introductory way. Today I would like us to see how humility and the incarnation relate. And more specifically, this is a short title to the sermon, it's more than that. It's really about how God calls his people, the church, Christians, to be of one mind, unified, in harmony with one another. But the only way this can happen is through humility. Well, how do we have humility? And the incarnation of Christ provides us not only the example of humility, but the power to live it out. This is why it's so profoundly connected, humility is, to the incarnation of Christ. So we'll consider several passages en route to Philippians 2. Allow me to read Philippians 2 first. Please follow along. I will read the first 11 verses of Philippians 2. This is God's holy and inspired word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, as we consider several biblical texts, please grant us understanding of your word and clarity about how we might apply the truth of your word. Lord, please give us unity and harmony as a body of believers, a local fellowship called Redeemer. 
Lord, we desire to practice that unity that your word speaks of so that the world may know that Jesus has been sent by you and that you deserve all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that we can render. I pray this through Christ. Amen. As I mentioned, I entitled the sermon Humility in the Incarnation. That's true. That's the simple title. But the biblical theme that I want us to explore briefly through a few passages is how God has called his church to be unified as a way of displaying that Christ is really the Savior. But the only way we can actually practice that unity is through humility. How do we get humble? How can we practice humility? Christ's incarnation provides it. The example of humility in an ultimate sense but also the promise of enablement, the ability by his spirit to carry it out. So what God calls us to, to be unified as a body of believers, is possible because of what Christ works in us through his incarnation. The incarnation of Christ, it's the starting point for our ability to practice the humility necessary for unity among Christians. First, I want us to notice the priority that God lays out in his word for our unity. I'm talking about unity between Christians in a local church level first and foremost, but even more generally among believers in Christ in his word, that we would practice harmony, that we would have peace with one another in Christ. It's never just for the sake of peace. It's in Christ. It's through the person of Jesus. Because we're in union with him, we then can have unity with each other. That unity is because or founded upon Christ. And he calls us Christians to have this. The first level we exercise it is in our church family. And then by, by connection, our, our homes that make up the church, we practice it there too. These are two of the toughest places. It's where we see people the most. And this is why God calls us to, to this unity. If we could display a unity in our families and in our church, that is a powerful, supernatural witness about what Christ has done. We know this is the priority of God in Scripture because Jesus, before doing his work of redemption on the cross, he prays. And he prays first for the disciples who have been walking with him for three plus years, that they would stay fast to their confession, that God would preserve them when enemies came upon them, when persecution came, when division came, that God would hold them together. Then he, two-thirds of the way through his prayer in John 17, refers to those who would come to faith in Christ through their witness. That's you and I. That's us. That's our church. That's Christians today. Listen to Jesus' prayer as you see God's priority for our unity. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, the unity we have as Christians in Christ will necessarily proclaim the truth of the message we preach. Uh, We preach reconciliation with God through Christ and him alone. If people preach that and believe that, it makes sense that we should be held accountable to practice reconciliation with each other as sinful people who are generally out for self. That's true of humanity. But unity will be used by God 
to make people stop and look and listen. What makes these people love each other? They're completely different. They're people like the rest of us. They must have conflicts. They must have arguments, differences of opinion. What makes them unified? Jesus says, please make them unified so that the world will believe God the Father that you have sent me, Jesus prays. He goes on and repeats himself in the prayer, which you know, Jesus' economy of words are perfect. The Lord's prayer he gives us as a model for prayer. When you pray, pray like this, and it's very specific. So now we're observing his prayer in John 17. It's right for us to take note when he repeats a theme. So it's not a, a side theme or a fringe theme. It's central to the mind and heart of God about us, his people. John 17, 22, he continues in the prayer. The glory that you have given me, Jesus says to the Father, I have given to them, his followers, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, he says it again, why is this unity important? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Now make no mistake, the unity is completely about Christ. We have to agree upon Christ. And once we believe upon Christ, that in itself is an evidence that we've been born again by God. That's that supernatural regeneration. That gives us a unity. We all have to admit it wasn't of our own. So if we've been born again to God because of what he has done, we have that in common with each other. And now in Christ, we can have a unity unlike any other kind of unity experienced by humankind. It's true, people can show some unity. If they're on a team together and they want to win a championship, they can practice selflessness or teamwork in in a brief stint. Same if you want to have success in your company or in your business or just be at peace because it's better than not being at peace. People will do it, but it's usually surface deep and it doesn't last long. That's not the unity we're talking about here. This is a divine unity that God calls us to and Jesus prays for Paul, later when he was writing to the Corinthian church, that church that came out of paganism, it didn't have much of a Jewish background, so it wasn't as aware of the Old Testament scripture and the Old Testament ethics. And so there are new converts to Christ and the Spirit of God is living in them, uh, but they don't know, all, they don't have all the knowledge that some other converts might have had. And so Paul writes to them in his first inspired letter, says this to the Corinthians, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, first, Paul's using the word brother or sister to describe other Christians. So right in that usage, we have a familial sense about what Christians are to one another. We, we kind of pass by that fast, brother or sister. But for the Corinthians, we're brothers and sisters now. Out of paganism, we are brothers and sisters now. And he wants them to all agree that there be no divisions that they be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, the content of that similarity or unity is the person and work of Christ. We never get away from that. That's what binds us together. But if you are in Christ, then you seek unity as God has called us to. The practice of unity between Christians is a top, if not the top priority for his people. I guess you would say the mission of the church is to proclaim the message of the gospel, reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God through the work of Christ and the person of Christ. Believe on Jesus. That's the message we proclaim. But you'd have to say that a top priority for us so that that message has credence, so that message has impact, or that message is listened to by God's design, is when these formerly 
unforgiven sinners become forgiven in Christ, they unite together in a way that's indescribable and supernatural, and the world takes pause and says, what do you have to say to us? We've got to hear what it is that makes you united like this, and we give them the gospel. So the unity of God's people cannot be overstated. And uh, I never feel like I've said it too much because it's something we're always working for because we're human beings. You know what I mean. What is the hindrance to unity? What's the number one enemy to our unity as Christians together? In a simple word, pride. That word pride. There are nuances to pride. There are different synonyms for pride. There's concepts that demonstrate pridefulness. But the simple term is pride. We know what God thinks of pride because in James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, before we go too far, let me say what that says again because 1 Peter repeats it essentially the same. Likewise, you who are younger, Peter writes, clothe yourselves with all humility towards one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's put it this way. The creator God of the universe who has authority over every creature that moves down to the very level of the cells, to all the planets, to everything that could possibly be beyond what we'll ever even discover, that God opposes you if you're proud. That's a big deal. You don't want God as your opposition. God opposes the proud. And pride is the enemy to unity in the church. And unity is what he calls us to in Christ. So how do we have unity when we struggle with pride, and we do struggle with it. In fact, the Proverbs um, records, by God's inspiration, the words of Solomon about this. Listen to what he says in a couple different versions of it. Solomon writes, by insolence, or that's the insistence of yourself as always being right, by insolence comes nothing but strife. But with those who take advice is wisdom. So those who don't take advice, that's prideful, and that always brings conflict, strife, unrest. The New Living Translation seeks to give a bit of an interpretation, but I think it's a good one in this case. Pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. In the King James Version, only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. It's about listening to others or submitting to others or considering others rather than thinking of yourself as having the answer. That's what pride is the New International Version. Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Think about it just for a moment. Do a little bit of an inventory of your life right now. Probably everybody right now has one or two or more areas that need reconciliation. It's, it's gnawing at you a bit because uh, it could be husband and wife. It could be between uh, siblings, could be parents with their children, could be with your boss, could be with your, co- your co-workers, people you employ, people in the church that you minister alongside of. You name it, there's some area of conflict. Now, I'm not saying you could solve all of it because a lot of it can be deep. I recognize that. But I bet you could do this analysis, and this would always be true. Pride has caused whatever has come about. I'm not saying it's all your fault, but even some of your pride would necessarily be wrapped into it, no doubt. It's with pride, any amount of pride comes contention, comes strife. And there's a recognition that we have to have about this in all of us. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't think of yourself as too high and too mighty. You know, think back at living in high school, and man, I would not want to go to high school or junior high. I hope it's different in, in Christian settings, but even in those settings, there's this thing that happens in, in 
let's face it, it happens among adults, where there's this classism or this, the cool kids or the not as cool kids or this, and we have, and remember that the, the insecurity you might have felt? Now, if you didn't feel that, good for you. But for those of us who did, it was a terrible existence. You just hated that, that thinking of who accepts me, who doesn't accept me, and all of that goes into that. In, in Romans, Paul's saying to, the, to Christians, that may be the way of the world, that may be the way people act naturally, but live in harmony with each other. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't just acknowledge them. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So the threat to our unity is pride. And pride takes various forms. The word conceit comes to mind. To be conceited, to think too highly of yourself, or more highly of yourself than those who are around you. Uh, Superiority is another word that's often associated with pride. When you set yourself above everything around you, you make sure that others are somehow forced to look up to you. Arrogance, uh, even less desirable perhaps than conceit or superiority, is arrogance. It combines uh, an elitist kind of view, even with an aggressive, destructive tendency towards others. That's what arrogance leads you towards. Selfishness, thinking about yourself first. Uh, You demand to be served first, or your considerations should be taken into account before anything else. Self-absorption. The self-absorbed person brings all topics back to themselves. These are the enemies to unity in the church. Pride. You know, you can do some test questions. And this is terrifying, especially if you are placed in a position of authority of any sort, like being a pastor or being a boss at work. Even parents, we can have the... If we're given some amount of authority because of our prideful tendency as human beings that everybody has, it can be abused very quickly. Uh, we just latch onto it as fast as you can imagine. So it's very, very convicting to even read these when I think in terms of my own leadership or being a parent or a husband. Any of these areas where the Lord gives me some level of responsibility and authority, there comes the temptation to live out my pride. Now let me give you a caution. If you're sitting here right now thinking of someone else who's prideful, you know what I'm saying? So forget about them. I just proved you've got to be thinking about yourself. Okay, so think about this in these questions. You find it difficult to admit your mistakes. You find it difficult to say sorry or ask for forgiveness when you know you're wrong. You refuse to back off an argument even though you know you've lost. You always compare with others. You're afraid to ask questions. You're afraid to say, I don't know. I won't keep going on. It's too heavy. But these are the enemy. These questions help us realize where we are. We ebb and flow with this in our life. But this will have a direct impact on all your relationships and most importantly, your relationship with your fellow redeemed believers that God calls you to be unified with so that we could have a place or a setting or an in for the proclamation of the gospel we believe. What's the main ingredient for unity? Pride's the threat. What's the main ingredient? Well, it's humility. It's the opposite of pride. And the Bible's clear about what this means. And we should look at it and then ask the question, but how do we get it? Because I think we probably know what the Bible says, but let's go over it a bit and then come to the passage before us, or at least the one we'll we'll bring as a capstone to this incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus leading us in this direction. The main ingredient for unity, then, is humility. If pride's the threat, the main ingredient or the catalyst for unity is humility in the body of believers. Back to Romans 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Try to serve each other. 
always try to work and serve each other. And you may say, it's not always reflective of my heart when I do this. I know, but sometimes the actions that we take when we know it's right will help uh, change our thinking and our mind about it because we know it's the right thing to do. So that's part of what's at work. Now, there's more than that. There's a spiritual empowerment God gives. But some of it is the discipline to recognize who we are in Christ as saved people, not talking to someone who's unregenerate, but already in Christ. What does God call me to do? And he says, outdo one another in showing honor. This is the practice of humility. Later in Romans 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, Never be wise in your own sight. The passage I just recited about pride, think of it in terms now of humility. Associate with one another. Don't think of class lines or age lines or whatever kind of thing that we might use to divide. Our education, our appearance, our finances, our intelligence, what part of town you live in, whatever. These are not boundaries for Christians. In fact, these boundaries are washed away, and that's one of the main ways we can manifest this unity that God gives. It's one of the main ways to show humility is we don't count that stuff. We just see each other in Christ and on the same level. Really, we don't see each other on the same level. I see you as more important than me. That's what I see in Christ. In Colossians, Paul writes to that more advanced church than the Corinthian church. Obviously, it doesn't matter so much. It's the biblical text, but it helps us understand what he's saying a little better when we know that original audience. He says to the Colossians in chapter 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He ties who they are in Christ, holy, beloved by God in Christ, and then he ties them to an action of humility. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, that can happen, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so also you must forgive. That's the description. It comes from the forgiveness God's given us. See, now we're leading into the last point. We went from, we should practice humility. What is humility? And it's putting others first in these things we've listed. And then why? In Colossians, as the Lord has forgiven you, you can humbly forgive, humbly lay yourself before somebody else because the Lord has forgiven you. So then we also must forgive. Also, I want to mention, Paul says to the Ephesians, Colossians and Ephesians are called the twin letters because they're similar in content. Church situations had enough similarity. And so Paul's writing to them. Some nuances are different. Philippians 4, with all humility and gentleness, they go together, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Eagerness. You never, do you ever think of gentleness with eagerness? Think about that. There's a humility and gentleness with patience. These are not words I usually think of when I think of eagerness. Think of the child Christmas morning. They're eager to open those presents. Not generally gentle. At least I wasn't gentle when I tore into the presents. Um, But eagerness here is coupled with humility and gentleness. We're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what God calls us to, and it's the exact antidote to pride, and it's the thing that brings unity, humility. If humility is the key to unity, how do we find the strength then? I know I've told you things you probably know. How do you go do it, though? That's so hard. It's so difficult to live out. That's where we come to Philippians 2 in one of the many deep, profound truths and practices and applications of Jesus becoming man. That's the starting point. 
Christ's incarnation. That's where we find it. Now look at the passage that's on your insert, Philippians 2. Let's walk through the passage together with an eye for this humility that we are looking for through Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, so he's writing in the second chapter of Philippians to a people who are believers, who profess faith in Christ, they trust in him, not in their works. I assume that's true for you, the body of Christ called Redeemer. If there's any encouragement for us in Christ, any comfort from love that we speak of, that we preach about, any participation in the Spirit, that's that spiritual bond we have in Christ with each other, but through Christ, we're in union with him spiritually because of faith in him. Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, the apostle as a father writing, complete my joy by being of the same mind, be unified, having the same love, love for Christ and love for one another, being in full accord, in full oneness, in full harmony, and of one mind. So Paul says to the Philippians, like he's already said to the Corinthians, to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, on the basis of the prayer of Christ, he's saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you see how important it is for us to be, yes, doctrinally accurate, because we can only be united to the true Christ, but to be united, how important this is to God, how, how this is a central theme, not a side theme. Knowing Christ will lead to loving others. Knowing Christ will lead to a spiritual union with others, a communion that we have with each other. Knowing Christ will lead to emphasizing others and to empathizing with others. Knowing Christ leads to a oneness that we can have, being of one mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, as a result of this union we have that's supernatural, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The way we become truly unified as a church is through humility. Humility is the supernaturally empowered demeanor or practice that God gives us in Christ. It's a certain mindset that promotes selfless action. Verse 4, let each of you, every single one of you members, children, this counts for you too, no matter how old you are, if you're listening, you're hearing what I'm saying, children, adults, let each of you look not to his own interests, what I want, what's for me, but also for the interests of others. not saying forget yourself and anything you might need. It's saying, though, consider others. Consider others. We're one together. God calls us to be united. And ultimately, this union we have will put Jesus on display. That's where we're heading with this. That's our mission to preach the gospel. Well, we'll have much more ability to preach that gospel from a place of unified strength together. We'll gain a hearing. God says so. Verse 5, 6, and 7 now give us the impact of the incarnation upon this command or this call of God to us. Have this mind in yourselves. What mind? What, what mind in particular? The one that is yours in Christ Jesus. You have it if you're a Christian. Now pause. Some of what I've been saying you take as for granted. Now you know it's a struggle, but you know that if a crisis arose in our church, you would give of yourself to help with that crisis. You've done it already in many ways. Maybe you've done it interpersonally or we've done it collectively. You just think that's a no-brainer to us. We should always seek to help others and love others. If they're under a trial or duress, we come to their aid. 
If they're struggling with sin or they're struggling with being sinned against, we come to your aid. We come to each other's aid. We should think of that second na- as second nature. Well, if you do think of that as second nature, if we do enjoy that in the church at some level, that's completely from God. That has nothing to do with how good you are or we are. That is ultimately a lesson or a, a declaration of the grace of God showering itself upon us. It's not an occasion for celebration of what we've done. It's an occasion for, Lord, why would you be so kind to us is to make us actually not care about ourselves more than everyone else. Because that's what I want to do. That's what I do when left alone. That's what I do in weak moments is I think more of me than you. But collectively, in Christ, as we encourage each other in Christ, we have opportunity to think of others as more important. And that is not something that just comes from sheer example. That comes from the mind of Christ, supernaturally given to those who are believers by the Spirit. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Here's the example. We know the empowerment, but now we're going to have the example. And brothers and sisters, it is the ultimate example. You could not conjure up a better example. All of us could tell stories of humility that we know that are great, better than we could ever imagine living out. Even ones in the life of Christ after his incarnation, they'd still be better than anything we can imagine. He washed his disciples' feet. But what we're reading here is something at another level. It's what Athanasius says. We can only be, start to scratch the surface of this. Look at verse, five and, verse 6 and 7 again. Who though he was in the form of God, so he's God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped because he was equal with God. A thing to be grasped means he did not hold on to it like a child holds to a toy that he won't share. Like a thing to be hoarded or be kept only for himself and his good. Uh, Jesus did not view his deity in this way. And this is important because when the Trinity makes decision in this mysterious council to save a people for himself, there has to be one who will voluntarily go and do the work. And rather than grasp all the access to his divine attributes for this period of time it would take to redeem, he does not hold that tightly to this so that he can do the work of redemption. That's humility and a level I can't explain any better than to leave the text say as it says. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words... Well, verse 7, but emptied himself. What does it mean he emptied himself? Did he empty himself of being God? No. Never at any time did he do this. But for a time, he took on the form of a servant. And that necessarily meant he gave up for that period of time independent access to his divine attributes. He didn't give up his divine attributes, just his independent access. So his omniscience he gave to the Father's will to be submissive to the will so the Father would reveal to him that which he needed revealed as he went along in the agreed-upon work of redemption. I know this is deep. It's heavy. But that's why the incarnation is truly what gives us the ability to live humbly. Because if the God of the, the triune God of the universe, if the second person of that Godhood, Godhead could actually take on flesh and for a time give up independent access to his divine attributes to save you, if he could give that up, certainly you can go home after the service and make up with your wife and make up with your child or make up with whoever it is and get over whatever petty conflict it is because the God of the universe has made himself man for you. You can say sorry. 
we can get along in the church. We don't have to have an argument about a Bible study or about who said what to whoever or what ministry you didn't sign up for or how many people didn't or did sign. We don't need that. Come on. Who are we? We are people redeemed by the God who became man. And because he has done this, we too can have this humility towards each other. And if we live like that, we're going to have a unity that's going to shout loud and clear to the world around us that Jesus is real. Because people don't on their own act this way. We come up with all sorts of disagreement, conflict, and argument. That's just who we are because it's about ourself. And God strips us of this, and he does so most vividly by the work of Christ. And part of that is Jesus becoming man. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the worst kind of death. So brothers and sisters, a true fruit of genuine salvation is a community of believers who love one another. A clear evidence that we have been born again is our unity as a church, for sure. A powerful witness to the world about our Savior that we proclaim is through the harmony and the unity that we have together in Christ. Yes, we're all different. We will have conflicts. We'll have disagreements and challenges. Those disagreements in and of themselves aren't the problem. It's what we do from there, how we reconcile them. That's where real unity is shown. We humble ourselves in such a way as to maintain peace without compromising the truth at any step. Where unity is on display, there is a clear testimony about Christ. At no time in the church's early life did it explode more than uh, in the second century. I've been studying for my church history Sunday school class. I've taught a lot, that subject a lot, but honing it down to shorter, to, uh, shorter classes is a super challenge. As you can imagine, even as fast as I talk, I still have to try to cram a lot in. And I read a lot that ends up on the cutting room floor. And I was reading through some of Tertullian, one of the earlier church fathers who lived in the second, into the third century. And he wrote before Christianity was legalized. So this is when Christians are still enduring persecution. But the church is growing exponentially. And it was alerting the Romans who were struggling themselves because the Roman Empire was being attacked from the outside. So Rome was very conscientious about their weakness. And then from the inside, um, Christianity is growing. And so some of the Romans wanted to say it was the fault of the Christians that were having so much trouble as an empire. Uh, in fact, it was the judgment of God for their, for their, um, their manifold uh, unrighteousness uh, that eventually brought the end of the Roman Empire. But Tertullian, who's writing against the backdrop of persecuted Christians, started writing letters to various Roman officials to tell them the truth of Christianity. And I want you to hear in an excerpt from one of his letters, one of his apologies that he wrote to some pagan leaders, I want you to hear what he draws upon to show them that Christians worship the true God and that what they believe in is right. Listen to what Tertullian says, speaking of him and Christians. We are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession in Christ, by unity of discipline and by the bond of a common hope in Christ talks about what their unity is based on. We meet together as an assembly and a congregation that offering up prayer to God as with a united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. He's talking about the regular worship meetings that Christians had and what they got together to do, to pray together and to praise God. This strong exertion God delights in, Tertullian writes. We pray too for the emperors and for their ministers 
and for all in authority. So we're not against the empire. We're praying for you. For the welfare of this world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation. These are all the things that we as Christians pray for you. He's talking to pagans now. By the way, we're praying for a delay in the final consummation. These early church fathers saw Christ was going to come back in judgment. If that's the case, all those who didn't know Christ would be judged. So they prayed for a delay in the consummation so that the empire would come to Christ. This is Tertullian preaching or praying, writing on behalf of his Christian mindset. Then he says, For the delay of the consummation, we assemble to read our sacred writings, the scriptures. And with the sacred words, we nourish our faith. So the word is a means of grace to them. We animate our hope. We make our confidence more steadfast. So by the word of God, we animate our hope and we become more steadfast in our confidence about Christ. Then he says, the tried men of our elders preside over us. He's talking about those men who had undergone persecution as leaders in the church. The tried men of our elders preside over us. Obtaining that honor, not by purchase, by established character. Most of the pagan leaders could buy in. Remember Claudius Lysias had to buy his citizenship? That's not how you become a member here or a leader here. Not by purchase, but by established character. There is no buying and selling of any sort in the things of God. Now he's going to talk about the love expressed between each other. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money as a religion that has its price. Now he's kind of ripping into paganism, Roman and Greek paganism. On the monthly day, if he likes, each puts a small donation in, but only if it's his pleasure and only if he be able. For there is no compulsion, it's all voluntary. These gifts are not spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. It's for the benevolence of the body of Christ. We, we collect this to take care of people who cannot pay or afford to provide the things they need. Then he closes. And if, it, if there happen to be any of the mines are banished to the islands, in the mines are banished to the islands, those who are prisoners, or shut up in the prisons, for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. But it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. They notice something's going on because of the way they're loving one another. Then Tertullian says, See, they say, how they love one another. For they themselves were animated by mutual hatred. The pagans were, they were mad. That's what unified them. But look at the Christians. And he closes. See, they say about us, how they are ready even to die for one another. For they themselves would sooner be killed. Jesus says in John 17, I ask that they may all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Paul writes to the Ephesians, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he writes to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I started with a quote from Athanasius. I'll remind you of it again in closing. The results of the incarnation of the Savior are such and so many. We've just started one. 
that anyone attempting to enumerate them should be compared to a person looking upon the vastness of the sea and attempting to count its waves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we admit we 